0: We've all gone to websites only to be presented with a pop-up asking if we'll accept the cookies. Well, did you know that by accepting those cookies, you're allowing that website to collect data on you? These websites will then sell your information to data brokers, who will then create a digital profile of you which can be used by banks, advertisers, and scammers against you. Well, thanks to Incogni, you no longer need to worry about your data being stolen and sold. Incogni is a tool that will remove your data from these companies for you. All you need to do is sign up, allow Incogni to work for you, and they will contact data brokers on your behalf and guarantee that your digital ID is removed from the internet. Use the link in the description and episode notes and get Incogni today for $6.49 per month on a year plan and protect your data and digital ID. With continual development in technology, hackers and cyber criminals are getting better and better at installing viruses and hacking your electronic devices. We've all had antivirus software, but your run of the mill software just isn't good enough anymore. With Surfshark antivirus, not only will you have antivirus scans and real time virus protection, but you'll also have access to a VPN. You'll be protected from targeted ads and tracking. You'll be notified if your data gets leaked by data brokers. And most importantly, it's incredibly easy to set up and use. If you feel like your online protection should be better, use the link in the description and episode notes to get 76% off Surfshark antivirus today and feel safe every day on your devices. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. Let's get started on the last chapter. Trigger warning. This book was written in the 1950s and contains views and words that were used in that time period. I do not agree with these words and views and would never use them in my daily life. I shall be ducking the audio to bleep any offensive language so that this book can be uploaded to its appropriate platforms, but apart from that, the book will stay as it was intended to be read. If you find this sort of language disturbing or triggering, then please listen to another audiobook. Thank you for your understanding, Isaac. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kessie. Part Four Four I've given what happened next a good lot of thought. And I've come around to thinking that it was bound to be and would have happened in one way or another at this time or that. Even if Turkle had got McMurphy and the two girls up and off of the ward like was planned. The big nurse would have found out some way what had gone on. Maybe just by the look on Billy's face. And she'd have done the same as she did, whether McMurphy was still around or not. And Billy would have done what he did. And McMurphy would have heard about it and come back. Would have had to have come back. Because he could no more have sat round outside the hospital playing poker in Carson City or Reno or someplace and let the big nurse have the last move and get the last play than he could have let her get by with it right under his nose. It was like he'd signed on for the whole game and there wasn't any way of him breaking his contract. As soon as we started getting out of bed and circulating around the ward, the story of what had taken place was spreading in a bushfire of low talk. They had a what? asked the ones who hadn't been on it. A whore in the dorm? Jesus! Not only a whore, the others told them, but a drunken blast to boot. May Murphy was planning to sneak her out before the day crew came on, but he didn't wake up. Now what kind of crock are you giving us? No crock. It's every word gospel. I was in on it. Those who had been in on the night started telling about it with a kind of pride and wonder. The way people tell about seeing a big hotel fire or a dam bursting, very solemn and respectful because the casualties aren't even counted yet. But the longer the telling went on, the less solemn the fellows got. Every time the big nurse and our hustling black boys turned up something new, such as an empty bottle of cough syrup, or the fleet of wheelchairs parked at the end of the hall like empty rides in an amusement park, it brought another part of the night back, sudden and clear, to be told to the guys who weren't in on it, and to be savored by the guys who were. Everybody had been herded into the day room by the black boys, chronics and acutes alike, milling together in excited confusion. The two old vegetables sat sunk in their beddings, snapping their eyes and their gums. Everybody was still in pajamas and slippers, except McMurphy Murphy and the girl. She was dressed, except for her shoes and the nylon stockings, which now hung over her shoulder. And he was in his black shorts with the white whales. They were sitting together on a sofa, holding hands. The girl had dozed off again, and Murphy was leaning against her with a satisfied and sleepy grin. Our solemn worry was giving away, in spite of us, to joy and humor. When the nurse found the pile of pills Harding had sprinkled on Cephal and the girl, we started to pop and snort to keep from laughing. And by the time they found Mr. Turkle in the linen room and let him out, blinking and groaning, tangled in a hundred yards of torn sheets like a mummy with a hangover, we were roaring. The big nurse took our good humor without so much as a trace of her little pasted smile. Every laugh was being forced right down her throat till it looked as if at any minute she'd blow up like a bladder. McMurphy draped one bare leg over the edge of the sofa and pulled his cap down to keep the light from hurting his reddened eyes. And he kept licking out a tongue that looked like it had been shellacked by that cough syrup. He looked sick and terrifically tired. And he kept pressing the heel of his hands against his temples and yawning. But as bad as he seemed to feel, He still kept his grin, and once or twice went so far as to laugh out loud at some of the things the nurse kept turning up. When the nurse went in to call the main building to report Mr. Turkle's resignation, Turkle and the girl Sandy took the opportunity to unlock that screen again and wave goodbye to all and go loping off across the grounds, stumbling and slipping on the wet, sun-sparkled grass. He didn't lock it back up, Harding said to McMurphy. Go on. Go on after them. Murphy groaned and opened one eye, bloody as a hatching egg. You kidding me? I couldn't even get my head through that window, let alone my whole body. My friend, I don't believe you fully comprehend. Harden goddamn you and your big words. All I fully comprehend this morning is I'm still half drunk and sick. Matter of fact, I think you're still drunk too. Chief, how about you? You still drunk? I said that my nose and cheeks didn't have any feeling in them yet, if this could be taken to mean anything. McMurphy nodded once and closed his eyes again. He laced his hands across his chest and slid down in his chair, his chin settling into his collar. He smacked his lips and smiled as if he were napping. Man, he said, everybody's still drunk. Harding was still concerned. He kept going on about how the best thing for McMurphy to do was get dressed quickly while the old Angel of Mercy was in there calling the doctor again to report the atrocities she had uncovered. But McMurphy maintained that there wasn't anything to get so excited about. He wasn't any worse off than before, was he? I've took their best punch, he said. Harding threw up his hands and went off, predicting doom. One of the black boys saw the screen was unlocked, unlocked it, and went into the nurse's station for the big flat ledger came back out, running his finger down the roll and lifting the names he read out loud as he cited the men that matched up with them. The roll is listed alphabetically, backwards, to throw people off, so he didn't get to the B's till right at the last. He looked around the day room without taking his finger from the last name in the ledger. Bibbit? Where's Billy Bibbit? His eyes were big. He was thinking Billy'd slipped right out under his nose and would he ever catch it? Who saw Billy Bibbit go, you damn goons? This set people to remembering just where Billy was. There were whispers and laughing again. The black boy went back into the station, and we saw him telling the nurse. She smashed the phone down in the cradle and came out of the door with the black boy hot after her. A lock of her hair had broken loose from beneath her white cap and fell across her face like wet ashes. She was sweating between her eyebrows and under her nose. She demanded we tell her where the eloper had gone. She was answered with a chorus of laughter, and her eyes went around the men. So, he's not gone, is he? Harding, he's still here, on the ward, isn't he? Tell me. Seffel, tell me! She darted her eyes out with every word, stabbing at the men's faces. But the men were immune to her poison. Their eyes met hers. Their grins mocked the old confident smile she had lost. Washington, Warren, come with me for room check. We rose and followed as the three of them went along, unlocking the lab, the tub room, the doctor's office. Scanlon covered his grin with his knotty hand and whispered, Hey, ain't it gonna be some joke on old Billy? We all nodded, and Billy's not the only one it's gonna be a joke on, now I think about it. Remember who's in there? The nurse reached the door of the seclusion room at the end of the hall. We pushed up close to see, crowding and craning to peep over the big nurse and the two black boys as she unlocked it and swung it open. It was dark in the windowless room. There was a squeak and a scuffle in the dark. The nurse reached out, flicked the light down on Billy and the girl where they were blinking up from that mattress on the floor, like two owls from a nest. The nurse ignored the howl of laughter behind her. William Bibbit. She tried so hard to sound cold and stern. William. Bibbit. Good morning, Miss Ratchet, Billy said, not even making any move to get up and button his pajamas. He took the girl's hand in his and grinned. This is candy. The nurse's tongue clucked in her bony throat. Oh, Billy, 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 I'm so ashamed of you. Billy wasn't awake enough to respond much to her shaming and the girl was fussing around, looking under the mattress for her nylons, moving slow and warm-looking after sleep. Every so often, she would stop her dreamy fumbling, and look up and smile at the icy figure of the nurse standing there with her arms crossed. Then feel to see if her sweater was unbuttoned, and go back to tugging for her nylons caught between the mattress and the tile floor. They both moved like fat cats, full of warm milk, lazy in the sun. And I guess they were still fairly drunk, too. Oh, Billy, the nurse said, like she was so disappointed she might break down and cry. A woman like this, a cheap, low, painted courtesan, Harding suggested, Jezebel. The nurse turned and tried to nail him with her cold eyes, but he just went on. Not Jezebel, no? He scratched his head and thought, how about Salome? She's notoriously evil. Perhaps dame is the word you want. Well, I'm just trying to help. She swung back to Billy. He was concentrating on getting to his feet. He rolled over and came to his knees, butting the air like a cow getting up. Then pushed on his hands and came to one foot, then the other, and straightened. He looked pleased with the success, as if he wasn't even aware of the crowd at the door teasing him and harrowing him. The loud talk and laughter swirled around the nurse. She looked from Billy and the girl to the bunch of us behind her. The enamel and plastic face was caving in. She shut her eyes and strained to calm her trembling concentrating. She knew this was it, her back to the wall. When her eyes opened again, they were very small and still. What worries me? Billy, she said, I could hear the change in her voice, is how your poor mother is going to take this. We'll be right back. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out The Happy Writer Podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts, or find us on Instagram, at Happy Writer Podcast. She got the response she was after. Billy flinched and put his hand to his cheek like he'd been burned with acid. Mrs. Bibbitts always been so proud of your direction. I know she has. This is going to disturb her terribly. You know how she is when she gets disturbed, Billy. You know how ill the poor woman can become. She's very sensitive, especially concerning her son. Shaw we spoke so proudly of you? She, uh, n- uh. His mouth was working. He shook his head, begging her. You d- d- don't n- n- need. Billy, 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 she said. Your mother and I are old friends. No, no, he cried. His voice scraped the white walls of the seclusion room. He lifted his chin, so he was shouting at the moon of light in the ceiling no. we stopped laughing. We watched Billy folding into the floor, his head going back, his knees coming forward. He rubbed his hands up and down that green pant leg. He was shaking his head in panic, like a kid that'd been promised a whipping just as soon as a willow was cut. The nurse touched his shoulder to comfort him. The touch shook him like a blow. Billy, I don't want her to believe something like this of you. But what am I to think? Don't tell, Miss Ratchet. Billy, I have to tell. I hate to believe that you would behave like this. But really, what else can I think? I find you alone, on a mattress, with this sort of woman. No, I didn't, I was... His hand went to his cheek again, and stuck there. She did... Billy, this girl could not have pulled you in here forcibly. She shook her head. Understand, I would like to believe something else. For your poor mother's sake. The hand pulled down his cheek, raking long red marks. She did, did, and looked around him, and M M M McMurphy, he did, and Hardin, and the 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 rest. They t- 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 teased me, c- called me things. Now his face was fastened to hers. He didn't look to one side or the other, but only straight ahead at her face like there was a spiraling light there instead of the features a hypnotizing swirl of cream white and blue and orange he swallowed and waited for her to say something but she wouldn't her skill her fantastic mechanical power flooded back into her analyzing the situation and reporting to her that all she had to do was keep quiet they m- 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 made me Please, Miss Ratchet, they may... may may... She checked her beam, and Billy's face pitched downward, sopping with relief. She put a hand on his neck and drew his cheek to her starched breast, stroking his shoulder while she turned a slow, contemptuous look across the bunch of us. It's all right, Billy. It's all right. No one else is going to harm you. It's all right. I'll explain to your mother. She continued to glare at us as she spoke. It was strange to hear that voice. Soft and soothing, and warm as a pillow coming out of her face as hard as porcelain. All right, Billy. Come along with me. You can wait over here in the doctor's office. There's no reason for you to be submitted to sitting out in the day room with these. Friends of yours... She led him into the office, stroking his bowed head and saying, Poor boy. Poor little boy. While we faded back down the hall, silently, and sat down in the day room without looking at one another or speaking. McMurphy was the last one to take a seat. The chronics across the way had stopped milling around and were settling into their slots. I looked at McMurphy out of the corner of my eye, trying not to be obvious about it. He was in his chair in the corner, resting a second before he came out for the next round, in the long line of next rounds. The thing he was fighting, you couldn't whip it for good. All you could do was keep on whipping it till you couldn't come out anymore, and somebody else had to take your place. There was more phoning going on in the nurse's station, and a number of authorities showing up for a tour of the evidence. When the doctor himself finally came in, Every one of these people gave him a look like the whole thing had been planned by him, or at least condoned and authorized. He was white and shaky under their eyes. You could see he'd already heard about most of what had gone on here, on his ward. But the big nurse outlined it for him again, in slow, loud details, so we could hear it too. Hear it in the proper way, this time, solemnly with no whispering or giggling while she talked. The doctor nodded and fiddled with his glasses, batting his eyes so watery I thought he must be splashing her. She finally finished by telling him about Billy and the tragic experience we'd put the poor boy through. I left him in your office. Judging from his present state, I suggest you see him right away. He's been through a terrible ordeal. I shudder to think of the damage that must have been done to the poor boy. She waited until the doctor shuddered, too. I think you should go and see if you can speak with him. He needs a lot of sympathy. He's in a pitiful state. The doctor nodded again and walked off towards his office. We watched him go. Mech, Scanlon said, listen. You don't think any of us are being taken in by this crap, do you? It's bad, but we know where the blame lies. We ain't blaming you. No, I said. None of us blame you. And wished I'd had my tongue pulled out as soon as I saw the way he looked at me. He closed his eyes and relaxed. Waiting, it looked like. Harding got up and walked over to him he had just opened his mouth to say something, when the doctor's voice, screaming down the hall, smashed a common horror and realization into everybody's face. Nurse! He yelled. Good Lord! Nurse! She ran, and the three black boys ran down the hall to where the doctor was still calling. But not a patient got up. We knew there wasn't anything for us to do now, but just sit tight and wait for her to come to the day room to tell us what we all had known was the one thing that was bound to happen. She walked straight to McMurphy. He cut his throat, she said. She waited, hoping he would say something. He wouldn't look up. He opened the doctor's desk and found some instruments, and cut his throat. The poor, miserable, misunderstood boy killed himself. He's there now, in the doctor's chair, with his throat cut. She waited again, but he still wouldn't look up. First Charles Cheswick, and now William Bibbitt. I hope you're finally satisfied, playing games with human lives, gambling with human lives, as if you thought yourself to be a god. She turned and walked into the nurse's station and closed the door behind her, leaving a shrill, killing cold sound ringing in the tubes of light over our heads. First, I had a quick thought to try and stop him, talk him into taking what he'd already won, and let her have the last round. But another, bigger thought wiped the first away completely. I suddenly realized, with a crystal certainty, that neither I or any of the half-score of us could stop him. That Harding's arguing, am I grabbing him from behind, or old Colonel Madison's teaching, or Scanlon's griping, or all of us together couldn't rise up and stop him. We couldn't stop him because we were the ones making him do it. It wasn't the nurse that was forcing him. It was our need that was making him push himself slowly up from sitting, his big hands driving down on the leather chair arms. Pushing him up, rising and standing like one of those moving-picture zombies, obeying orders, beamed at him from forty masters. It was us that had been making him go on for weeks, keeping him standing long after his feet and legs had given out, weeks of making him wink and grin and laugh and go on with his act long after its humor had been parched dry between two electrodes. We made him stand and hitch up his black shorts like they were horsehide chaps and push back his cap with one finger like it was a ten-gallon Stetson, slow Mechanical gestures. And when he walked across the floor, you could hear the iron in his bare heels ring sparks out of the tile. Only at the last, after he'd smashed through that glass door, her face swinging round with terror, forever ruining any other look she might try and use again, screaming when he grabbed her and ripped her uniform all the way down the front, screaming again, when the two nippled circles started from her chest and swelled out and out, bigger than anybody had ever imagined, warm and pink in the light. Only at the last, after the officials realized that the three black boys weren't gonna do anything but stand and watch, and they would have to beat him off without their help, doctors and supervisors and nurses prying those heavy red fingers out of the white flesh of her throat as if they were her neck bones "'jerking him backwards, offer, with a loud heave of breath. "'Only then did he show any sign that he might be anything other "'than a sane, willful, dogged man performing a hard duty "'that finally had to be done, like it or not. "'He gave a cry at the last. "'Falling backward, his face appeared to us for a second upside down "'before he was smothered on the floor by a pile of white uniforms. "'He let himself cry out. A sound of a cornered animal, fear and hate and surrender and defiance. That if you ever trail a coon or a cougar or a lynx, is like the last sound the treed and shot and falling animal makes as the dogs get him. When he finally doesn't care any more about anything but himself, and is dying. I hung around another couple of weeks to see what was to come. Everything was changing. Seffold and Fredrickson signed out together against medical advice. And two days later, another three acutes left, and six more transferred to another ward. There was a lot of investigation about the party on the ward and about Billy's death, and the doctor was informed that his resignation would be accepted, and he informed them that they would have to go the whole way and can him if they wanted him out. The big nurse was over in medical for a week, so for a while, we had the little jet nurse from Disturbed running the ward. That gave the guys a chance to change a lot of ward policy. By the time the big nurse came back, Harding had even got the tub room back open and was in there dealing Blackjack himself, trying to make that hairy, thin voice of his sound like McMurphy's auctioneer bellow. He was dealing when he heard a key hit the lock. We all left the tub room and came out in the hall to meet her, to ask about McMurphy. She jumped back two steps when we approached, and I thought for a second she might run. Her face was bloated blue and out of shape on one side, closing one eye completely and She had a heavy bandage round her throat and a new white uniform. Some of the guys grinned at the front of it, in spite of its being smaller and tighter and more starched than her old uniforms. It could no longer conceal the fact that she was a woman, smiling, Harding stepped up close. "'and asked her what had become of Mac. "'She took a little pad and pencil "'from the pocket of her uniform, and wrote, "'He will be back,' on it, and passed it around. "'The paper trembled in her hand. "'Are you sure?' "'Harding wanted to know after he read it. "'We'd heard all kinds of things, "'that he'd knocked down two aides undisturbed "'and taken their keys and escaped, "'that he'd been sent back to the work farm, "'even that the nurse,' in charge now till they got a new doctor, was giving him special therapy. "'Are you quite positive?' Harding repeated. The nurse took out her pad again. She was stiff in the joints, and her more than ever white hand skeered on the pad, like one of those arcade gypsies that scratch out fortunes for a penny. "'Yes, Mr. Harding,' she wrote. "'I would not say so if I was not positive. "'He will be back.' Harding read the paper, then tore it up and threw the pieces at her. She flinched and raised her hand to protect the bruised side of her face from the paper. Lady, I think you're full of so much bullshit, Harding told her. She stared at him, and her hand wavered over the pad a second. But then she turned and walked into the nurse's station, sticking the pad and pencil back down in the pocket of her uniform. Hmm. Harding said. Our conversation was a bit spotty, it seems. But then, when you are told that you are full of bullshit, what kind of written comeback can you make? She tried to get her ward back into shape, but it was difficult with McMurphy's presence still tromping up and down the halls and laughing out loud in the meetings and singing in the latrines. She couldn't rule with her old powers anymore, not by writing things on pieces of paper. She was losing her patience, one after the other. After Harding signed himself out and was picked up by his wife and George transferred to a different ward, just three of us were left from the group that had been on the fishing crew, myself and Martini and Scanlon. I didn't want to leave just yet because she seemed to be too sure. She seemed to be waiting for one more round, and I wanted to be there in case it came off. And one morning... After McMurphy'd been gone for three weeks, she made her last play. The ward door was opened, and the black boys wheedled in this gurney with a chart at the bottom that said in heavy black letters, McMurphy, Randall P., post-operative, and below it was written in ink, Lobotomy. They pushed it into the day room and left it, standing against the wall along next to the vegetables. We stood at the foot of the gurney, reading the chart, then looked up to the other end, at the head dead in the pillow. A swirl of red hair over a face milk-white, except the heavy purple bruises around the eyes. After a minute of silence, Scanlon turned and spat on the floor. Ah, what's the old bitch trying to put over on us anyhow, for crap's sakes? That ain't him. Nothing like him, Martini said. How stupid does she think we are? Oh, they done a pretty fair job, though, Martini said, moving alongside the head and pointing as he talked. See, they got the broken nose and that crazy scar. Even sideburns. Sure, Scanlon growled, but hell. I pushed past the other patients to stand beside Martini. Sure, they can do things like scars and broken noses, I said. But they can't do that look. There's nothing in the face. Just like one of those store dummies. Ain't that right, Scanlon? Scanlon spat again. Damn right. Those things, you know, too blank. Anybody can see that. Look here, one of the patients said, peeling back the sheet. Tattoos. Sure, I said. They can do tattoos. But the arms, huh? The arms. I couldn't do those. His arms were Big. For the rest of the afternoon, Scanlon and Martini and I ridiculed what Scanlon called that crummy sideshow fake lying there on the gurney. But as the hours passed and the swelling began subsiding around the eyes, I saw more and more guys strolling over to look at the figure. I watched them walk by, acting like they were going to the magazine rack or the drinking fountain so they could sneak another look at the face. I watched and tried to figure out what he would have done. I was only sure of one thing. He wouldn't have left something like that sit there in the day room with his name tacked on it for 20 or 30 years so the big nurse could use it as an example of what can happen if you buck the system. I was sure of that. I waited that night till the sounds of the dorm told me everybody was asleep until the black boys had stopped making their rounds. Then I turned my head on the pillow so I could see the bed next to mine. I'd been listening to the breathing for hours since they'd wheeled the gurney in and lifted the stretcher onto the bed, listening to the lungs, stumbling and stopping, then starting again, hoping as I listened that they would stop for good. But I hadn't turned to look yet. There was a cold moon at the window, pouring light in the dorm like skim milk. I sat up in bed, and my shadow fell across the body, seemed to cleave it in half between the hips and the shoulders, leaving only a blank space. The swelling had gone down enough in the eyes that they were open. They stared into the full light of the moon, opening and undreaming, glazed from being opened so long without blinking until they were like smudged fuses in a fuse box. I moved to pick up the pillow, and the eyes fastened on the movement and followed me as I stood up and crossed the few feet between the beds. The big, hard body had a tough grip on life. It fought a long time against having it taken away, flailing and thrashing around so much I finally had to lie full length on top of it and scissor the kicking legs with mine while I mashed the pillow into the face. I lay there, on top of the body for what seemed like days, until the thrashing stopped. Until it was still a while and had shuddered once and was still again. Then I rolled off. I lifted the pillow, and in the moonlight I saw the expression hadn't changed from the blank, dead look the least bit, even under suffocation. I took my thumbs and pushed the lids down and held them till they stayed. Then I lay back on my bed. I lay for a while, holding the covers over my face, and thought I was being pretty quiet but Scanlan's voice hissing from his bed let me know I wasn't. Take it easy, chief, he said. Take it easy. It's okay. Shut up, I whispered. Go back to sleep. It was quiet a while. Then I heard him hiss again and ask, Is it finished? I told him, yeah. Christ, he said then. She'll know. You realize that, don't you? Sure, nobody be able to prove anything. Anybody could have kicked off a post-operative like he was. Happens all the time. But her? She'll know. I didn't say anything. Was I you, Chief? I'd breeze my tail out of here. Yes, sir. I tell you what. You leave out of here, and I'll say I saw him up and moving around after you left and cover you that way. That's the best idea, don't you think? Oh, yeah? Just like that. Just ask him to unlock the door and let me out? No. He showed you how, one time, if you think back. That very first week, you remember? I didn't ask him, and he didn't say anything else. And it was quiet in the dorm again. I lay there a few minutes longer, and then got up and started putting on my clothes. When I finished dressing, I reached into Fort Murphy's nightstand and got his cap and tried it on. It was too small, and I was suddenly ashamed of trying to wear it. I dropped it on Scanlan's bed as I walked out of the dorm. He said, take it easy, buddy, as I walked out. The moon, straining through the screens of the tub room windows, showed the hunched, heavy shape of the control panel glinted off the chrome fixtures and glass gauges so cold I could almost hear the tick of it striking. I took a deep breath and bent over and took the levers. I heaved my legs under me and felt the grind of weight at my feet. I heaved again and heard the wires and connections tearing out of the floor. I lurched up to my knees and was able to get an arm around it and my other hand under it. The chrome was cold against my neck and the side of my head. I put my back towards the screen, then spun and let the momentum carry the panel through the screen and window with a ripping crash. The glass splashed out in the moon, like a bright, cold water baptizing the sleeping earth. Panting, I thought for a second about going back and getting Scanlan and some of the others but then I heard the running squeaks of the black boy's shoes in the hall, and I put my hand on the sill and bolted after the panel into the moonlight. I ran across the grounds, in the direction I remembered seeing the dog go, toward the highway. I remember I was taking huge strides as I ran, same at a step, and float a long ways before my next foot struck the earth. I felt like I was flying. Free. Nobody bothers coming after an AWOL, I knew. And Scanlon could handle any questions about the dead man. No need to be running like this. But I didn't stop. I ran for miles before I stopped and walked up the embankment onto the highway. I caught a ride with a Mexican guy going north in a truck full of sheep and give him such a good story about me being a professional Indian wrestler the syndicate tried to lock me up in a nut house that he stopped real quick and gave me a leather jacket to cover my greens and loaned me ten bucks to eat while I hitchhiked to Canada. I had him write his address down before he drove off, and told him I'd send him money as soon as I got a little ahead. I might go to Canada, eventually. But I think I'll stop along the Columbia on the way. I'd like to check around Portland, and Hood River, and the Dallas, to see if there's any of the guys I used to know back in the village who haven't drunk themselves goofy. I'd like to see what they've been doing since the government tried to buy their right to be Indians. I've even heard that some of the tribe have took to building their old ramshackle wood scaffolding all over that big million-dollar hydroelectric dam, and it's spearing salmon in the spillway. I'd give something to see that. Mostly, I'd just like to look over the country around the gorge again, just to bring some of it clear in my mind again. I've been away a long time. The end. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe because there's more to come. And if you're listening on podcast, please leave a review. Five stars preferred, but you can do what you want. It's your life. You've got free will. I said it was going to be intense, and... um, I feel like Intense maybe underplayed it a little bit. Um, What a way to end a book. That's, yeah, that book's going to sit with me a while. The next book will be coming out in just a couple of days. We will be starting, finally, as to your requests on Huckleberry Finn. Again, probably going to be a lot of trigger warnings for that book, because, boy howdy. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff in there that you cannot say at all, but uh, I'm going to read the book because it's on your school reading lists and uh, that's what this show, podcast, whatever you want to call it, is all about. Helping make books more accessible. Once again, thank you for listening. And until next time, bye-bye.